How many baby boomers will develop dementia? You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me is Dr. Karen Hirschman, a research assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Dr. Hirschman, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Define dementia. Dementia. Well, dementia is not just memory loss, but memory loss plus another cognitive area that has a deficit. So cognition is mental activities, knowing, thinking, learning, judging, and we can divide those areas into several components when we think about cognition. And so when someone has dementia, they're going to have memory loss, but they're also going to have a deficit in another area, such as attention, their, essentially their ability to stay focused or on task, memory, like I mentioned, so long-term and short-term, language issues, so speaking, comprehending others, and praxis, making sense of what they see and what they do, and then executive functioning, so planning and organizing, how they order their day and the things that are around them. How many Americans have dementia? Well, the most recent statistics in 2007 indicate that approximately 5 million people have Alzheimer's disease, which is just one form of dementia. And the estimate is growing, and they expect that by 2050, there should be between 11 and 16 million people with dementia. These are big figures, okay? So these are figures that are total numbers of people estimated to have or will have Alzheimer's, regardless of whether they're diagnosed with it or not. Describe the different types of dementia. So Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia, accounting for 50 to 70% of the cases. Vascular dementia is widely considered the second most common form of dementia. There's also something called mixed dementia, which is characterized by the presence of features of both Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia. Parkinson's disease often has features of dementia. There's something called dementia with Lewy bodies, which can cause a pattern of decline similar to Alzheimer's disease, involving problems with memory, confusion, poor judgment. Frontal lobe or frontal temporal dementia is a disorder with cellular damage, which tends to concentrate on the front and side regions of the brain. There's one type of it, I should say, that's called Pick's disease, which is characterized by something called Pick's bodies that they can view through abnormalities in the brain. Crookfeld-Jacob disease, normal pressure, hydrocephalus, those are all other forms of dementia. So dementia is essentially an overarching category. So it's a catch-all term for at least six months of progressive losses in brain function that interfere with a person's ability to do their usual everyday tasks. What are the symptoms and warning signs of dementia? So there are common warning signs and symptoms that we should be looking for when we're looking to see if there's a problem occurring. And as we've talked about already, the onset and decline happens over time. So it's not just memory loss, but we're looking at other things. So recent memory loss that affects daily activities is one component but also you should be looking for difficulty performing familiar tasks. So if your patient couldn't balance their checkbook when they were younger and can't balance it now, they don't have dementia. They just can't balance their checkbook. But if your patient was a bookkeeper and did this for a living, and now the family is mentioning to you that the patient's having trouble paying bills, keeping track of money, then there's a problem that needs further assessment. Other areas that there can be deficits are difficulty with speaking or problems with language. If they seem to be presenting with impaired judgment or there's a report that they're disoriented to time or place, they misplace things, have disorganized thinking, changes in mood and behavior are also common, and changes in personality. 
you know, looking at this as a whole. So you want to talk with the family and get a sense of, or talk with the patient to get a sense of what else is going on, and do these things seem to be worsening over time? How do you have that conversation with a patient who has symptoms of early onset dementia about their dementia? So there are some great resources. For example, the Alzheimer's Association puts out wonderful literature for physicians on how to have that conversation, how to sit down, and what kind of language should be used. You know, when you share the diagnosis, you obviously want to do it with your patient in a private, quiet location. You want to ask them if they have a support person, so a family member, a spouse. It's important to talk to them about it in a very straightforward way and avoiding sort of the medical jargon, but to communicate with them in a way that talks to them about, you know, we think it might be Alzheimer's disease because of the following symptoms you're experiencing and giving specific examples explaining to them what Alzheimer's is, that the cells in their brain are gradually starting to fail and that eventually the cells begin to die and this brain failure is what's causing the symptoms they're experiencing. I think it's important to talk with them, talk with the patient, talk with their family about not to be embarrassed or ashamed of their symptoms and that it's a physical illness just like any other chronic condition like heart disease or even arthritis. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me is Dr. Karen Hirschman, a research assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, discussing dementia. Dr. Hirschman, what do you advise regarding having a conversation with families family members about the patient with symptoms of early onset dementia? Well, I think it's important that the patient gives permission first, that it's okay for you to talk with their family. I think it's important to share the same information about what Alzheimer's disease is or what form of dementia they may have. It's important to let them know that they're not alone, that there are lots of resources out there in terms of information that they can access to learn more about the disease and the progression that they should start planning. If it's early enough in the process and the patient can provide their feedback and participate in decisions about their care and about their future, and there's a way to preserve their autonomy and to have that conversation with the family about planning for the future and what that means in terms of finances, living situation, and medical care. What is your message of hope in that regard when people obviously are going to be very scared not knowing what the future holds. Unfortunately, this is a disease that we cannot cure. But working together with the family, we can explain to them what's happening over time and that this is usually a very slow progression, that this isn't usually a fast progression for patients who are 65 and older who might be diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. The importance of talking with your family, having the patient and whoever they see as their decision maker or their closest family members, people they would want with them in having this discussion, it allows them to start to begin that conversation about what they want and preserving their preferences. So allowing the patient to really convey how important it is for them to make it to a specific event with their family possibly or even looking forward about what they want and wouldn't want in terms of, of health care. So if they haven't put an advance directive together to indicate what they would want medically if they became terminal and were unable to make decisions for themselves, but also to designate someone to be that decision maker for them and so that that person knows what the patient would or wouldn't want if they are then expected to make those decisions for them. Tell us about the Enhancing Care Coordination Study. So currently we're testing a transitional care nursing intervention model 
sometimes called the Advanced Practice Nurse Care Model, designed by Dr. Mary Naylor and her colleagues at the School of Nursing here at the University of Pennsylvania. And this model has been tested in three NIH-funded randomized control trials with cognitively intact, chronically ill older adults. And it's consistently demonstrated improved quality and reductions in hospital readmissions and reductions in healthcare costs among intervention patients as compared to control patients receiving the standard of care. And we're now extending that model to other high-risk populations and with our pilot funding from the Alzheimer's Association and now support from the National Institute of Aging and the Marion S. Ware Alzheimer's Program at the University of Pennsylvania, our team is testing a range of interventions designed to enhance the care management of elders with cognitive impairment and their caregivers throughout the episode of an acute illness. What have you discovered so far? Well, one of the most interesting things is that we screen all elders 65 and older who meet our study criteria, and we've screened over 2,500 patients, and approximately 50% of them have screened positive, meaning they've got deficits in the area of orientation, recall, or executive functioning when they've been admitted. Only about 6% of those we've screened, meaning who are eligible, have a medical history of dementia in their record. So these are people who have anywhere from mild to severe impairments in multiple areas that we've discussed, so areas of cognition that have they've had deficits in worsening memory, but also issues of executive functioning, which is how they plan and organize their world, problems with attention, staying focused on tasks, etc. And we were really surprised that we saw such a high percentage of researchers reported slightly lower levels of dementia and cognitive impairment among hospitalized elders. What's interesting about this study is that we're also capturing delirium, so not just dementia, but people who have dementia and delirium, and these are the most common causes of cognitive impairment among hospitalized older adults, and they're associated with higher mortality rates, increased morbidity, and higher healthcare costs. And how often are you seeing that? Well, the combined group, meaning having both, we're in the process of trying to tease that out of the data, but we are seeing approximately 20% of the sample having delirium in addition to other cognitive impairments. We also are finding that a percentage of them improve. Once they go home, their their area that was affected, so they don't have dementia, but they have some form of mild impairment that may or may not become dementia over time. But at the time they were hospitalized, they had some form of impairment. So we are seeing over time some people who are resolving their level of impairment. How are you obtaining the data? We are screening all of these patients within the first 24 to 48 hours of their admission to the hospital within reason. So there are some people who are coming right out of the OR and that's not appropriate. So the general time frame is 24 to 48 hours. We screen them and we enroll a dyad. So we're not just enrolling patients, we enroll them and their caregiver. And that's you know increasingly important since patients who have cognitive impairments aren't always the best historians about their care and about what they're capable of doing. So we interview both the patient and the family member at baseline upon enrollment in the study. And then we, we also do assessments and interviews with the patient and the family member who enrolls in the study at two weeks, six weeks, 12 weeks, 24 weeks, and 52 weeks post-discharge from the initial hospitalization. What do you hope to find? What we're hoping to find is that we are going to decrease caregiver burden, improve functioning for the patient, reduce costs, so rehospitalizations and decrease those costs. That and caring for these patients. Does the study include caregivers? Yes. In this population with people with cognitive impairments, the patient isn't always the best informant. They aren't always the best at giving you an accurate assessment of their capabilities, what they're able to do on a daily basis. 
So we have included the caregiver or a family member identified by the patient as somebody involved in their day-to-day care as, as part of the enrolled subject. So they are, we enroll them as a dyad, and they have to be a dyad in order to enroll in the study. So we're providing support to both the patient and the family member through these, this intervention study. Often these family caregivers are left to deal with the complex needs of these elders with cognitive impairment following a hospital discharge. And study findings suggest that their lack of knowledge and skills contribute to the poor patient outcomes that have been reported and increased caregiver burden and depression among this population of caregivers. So we're interested in looking at whether or not our current nursing intervention is going to change some of those outcomes. How do you believe the results of this study will impact medical professionals? I think that we're most interested in trying to find new ways to provide care for this population that are going to dovetail nicely with the changing healthcare environment so that we've got nurses providing care to these dyads, these patients and their family members as they're discharged from an acute event, working closely with the patient's physicians and other providers to help keep them out of the hospital and assess medication conflicts that may be there. So they're doing medication reconciliation. So we're looking at this intervention this, uh, that we've, we've used, this transitional care nursing intervention, this model of care, to, to try and change the system. And ideally, if it could be reimbursed, obviously what we're providing is a free service, and we are looking for buy-in of this model in other ways. And I think that if we can continue to show that it has decreased rehospitalizations and improved outcomes for these, this population, both the patients and their families, that the buy-in is there. What's your best advice as to how healthcare professionals can be better prepared to care for dementia patients in the future? I think being very aware of what the warning signs and symptoms are, listening to both the patient as they currently do, but also to family members that may be raising some concerns. Approximately 50% of people 85 and older will develop Alzheimer's disease. That's the greatest risk factor is advancing age. So as our population ages, this is going to be something to look for. 50% of your patients 85 and older will have some form of dementia. I think it's about being aware and cognizant of of what's there. I think also what's important is remembering that our society has a stigma associated with the diagnosis of dementia. And so when talking with families about this and being very well aware of it, I think that in the future we need to continue to strive towards decreasing that stigmatization. Thanks to Dr. Karen Hirschman for discussing dementia. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our entire library of on-demand podcasts. Or call us toll-free with your comments and suggestions at 888 6157. That's 888-639-6157. Thank you for listening.